dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bass To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver And gold you have taken From somebody else you're listening to episode 731 of Unwelcome Guests, the global oligarchy. I'm Robin Upton. We continue where we left off last time, the adaption of Al Jazeera's The Secrets of the Seven Sisters, and to conclude, a recent episode of the Corbett Report entitled How Big Oil Conquered the World, which takes a helpfully contrasting look at the rise of big oil, focusing particularly on John D. Rockefeller and its impact on US society. Back in the Caucasus, the Armenian sacred mountain Ararat is guarded by Russian watchtowers. The Russian bear had offered the country its protection, a way of surveilling Baku's oil and the trade routes. When one buys petrol here, the source is not important, contraband or otherwise. The borders here are also of little importance. The region's geography is defined by pipeline diplomacy. To get the oil out of Baku and to take it to Turkey, then Europe, the most direct route passes through Iran, which the Americans categorically refuse to take. Another project crosses Armenia, which Azerbaijan refuses, still being at war with its neighbour. The only route possible is via the north and Georgia, a detour of 600 kilometers and millions of dollars more. The BTC was created, the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan, a pipeline 1,774 kilometers long, built at a cost of $4 billion. The Caspian Sea oil avoided Russia, but in Moscow, power was changing hands. A new czar was enthroned a former KGB colonel by the name of Vladimir Putin. He too needed oil revenues to finance the Russian renewal and reinforce its international influence. There was no question of letting the oil flow away unheeded. Putin moving into the Kremlin and realizing that the oligarchs ran the Kremlin, he didn't. And he set about changing the balance of power. He basically had to find somebody that he was going to use to uh, make the example amongst the oligarchs that you are allowed to run your businesses, you're allowed to be billionaires, but you will not fiddle around in Russian politics. And Kordakovsky crossed the line. In October 2003, Mikhail Kordakovsky, the all-powerful president of Yukos, Russia's biggest oil company, was arrested. On May 31st, 2005, the young billionaire was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud at a mockery of a trial. I think Kordakovsky had a couple of things going. One was that there was talk of uh, Yukos uh, getting into a relationship with ExxonMobil, Exxon. And uh, that struck Putin as a step too far also. We are not going to have Western companies owning majority positions in uh, Russian oil companies. We are going to control this as a state. I think Putin believed that for him to have the resources he needed to survive as the, as the president of Russia, he needed both oil and gas revenues to the extent he could accumulate them. Khodorkovsky, Putin's personal enemy, was tried again. 
on December 30, 2010, the oligarch was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment for embezzlement and money laundering. Russian oil regained its rightful place in the new Tsar's coffers. Putin did bring order in the first phases of his reassertion of the Kremlin. He brought order to oil and he brought order to gas. And he made it clear Russia has too much interest in these two commodities to let them be handled and, and frittered away. We want, the, uh, we want the control of that here in the Kremlin. President Putin may have re-established order, but the Caucasus seem to have avoided his control. The Georgian capital has changed. There's a distinct scent of dollars in the air. In 2003, the Rose Revolution brought a new young president to power, Mikhail Saakashvili, educated in the US and an ally for Washington. Oil has put Georgia as, uh, on the world map as a geopolitical asset to the West, as a key transit country for Caspian energy. Oil has given the West a key interest in maintaining Georgia's independence and Georgia's viability as a state. Maintaining independence in the Caucasus is a constant challenge. It's a patchwork of mini republics, self-proclaimed regional states and ethnic conflicts. South Ossetia and Abkhazia rebelled against Georgia. Moscow encouraged and supported their separatist claims. On August 8, 2008, believing in the United States and perhaps manipulated by Moscow, President Saakashvili attacked South Ossetia. Putin seized the opportunity and Russian troops massed along the border inflicted a severe defeat on the Georgian army. The Russian bear bared its teeth. If you look at the Eurasian map, you will see that the only uh, obvious way for Caspian oil and gas to go to Europe is through Azerbaijan, without Russian control, is through Azerbaijan and Georgia, this energy corridor. Definitely, this is something that is not very liked by Russian counterparts, and this is something that they would like to avoid in future. And Russian invasion last year was serving that purpose too. We leave Georgia and head for Armenia. Among the mountains on the front separating the Armenian Karabakh from Azerbaijan, the BTC pipeline is close by, within rifle range. Many believe the Russians engineered the conflict here in order to maintain the pressure. Away from Baku and the Caucasus, on the opposite side of the Caspian Sea in Asia, the combat for oil also continues. Astana, the new capital of Kazakhstan, the Dubai or Manhattan of the steppes. The lavishness orchestrated by President Nur Sultan Nazarbayev might be seen as excessive, just as excessive as the fact that he's been ruling the country since 1991. As soon as Kazakhstan obtained independence, all of the world's major oil companies were fighting to get control of our oil. Of course, the American companies, the Seven Sisters, were the first to arrive. Then came the European majors, particularly from two countries, Great Britain and France. After the collapse of the USSR in 1992, the Seven Sisters were waiting to pounce on the country's fabulous oil reserves. 
Kazakhstan was in financial disarray and the major's pockets were filled with dollars. Chevron, advised by Condoleezza Rice, showed its generosity towards the authorities. $100 million found their way into President Nazarbayev's Swiss accounts. When the majors first arrived, there were no anti-corruption measures. a single road crosses this vast country, five times the size of France. The steps stretch out beyond the horizon once traversed by ancient nomads and Mongol horsemen. The Kazakh president, Nazarbayev, talks of making the country one of the world's largest oil producers. But half the population here gain nothing from oil revenues, and a quarter of them have no access to drinking water. In the middle of the desert, the oil installations have replaced the caravanserais, and the oil trains bear their cargo along the old Silk Road. At the end of the trail is Atirao, a city that dreams of becoming Asia's Houston. Fishing and caviar once made the reputation of this small town on the fringes of the Soviet Empire. Today, it's a hunting ground for the oil trade conquistadors. Arthur Shakrazayan, journalist. If you ask whether the seven sisters have taken control of the oil in Kazakhstan, the answer is yes. The latest major acquisitions of the companies, which are the successors of the Seven Sisters, are the oil fields of Tengiz and Kashagan, sixth and seventh in terms of the world's oil reserves. Discovered in 2000, north of the Caspian, Kashagan is the biggest offshore oil field in the world, shared out between Total, Shell, Exxon, Mobil and ENI. At a depth of 5,000 metres, Permeated with sulfur and gas, it's the most inaccessible oil in the history of production and a major ecological risk. The country has no experts who know how to draw up contracts. The Western specialists interpreted everything as they saw fit. At first, they estimated that developing Kashagan would cost 50 billion US dollars. Then they recalculated and said 130 billion US dollars, almost three times as much. An enormous sum, quite simply enormous. Kazakhstan won't be able to pay off these debts, even with the oil. It will be in debt forever. It will never make a profit. On this morning's guided tour, we're welcomed at what will be the Balashan refinery. It's a ticking time bomb. A secret report by the ENI company states that in case of an accident, the hydrogen sulfide emissions would kill all the workers here within 15 seconds, and a toxic cloud would form over the town of Atirao in less than 15 minutes. Maksat Idenov, former vice president of Kazmunaigas. As a national oil company, as a authority, and 
also with other partners like big companies like ExxonMobil, like Total, Shell, ConocoPhillips, Eniagip. All of those companies, I believe they believe that the values. And the values for all of us is honesty, integrity, respect between the partners and the equal treatment. This is the values which we are believed in. Kazakhstan has already mortgaged its oil and its future. But the reserves announced so far swell the company's accounts forecasts and fill their shareholders' pockets. The most dangerous thing is the illusion of wealth the oil brings. In the early 90s, when the Tengiz contract was signed, the government told people the Tengiz oil fields would open up very rapidly. The project was starting up and we'd be like Q8. Fifteen years later, people are asking, where is our Q8? There is no Q8. The neighboring states, Azerbaijan, Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Iran, vie for dominion over the Caspian Sea. To avoid Russia, the Seven Sisters wanted to build an underwater pipeline. The Russians and the Iranians refused under the pretext of ecological concerns. A fleet of tankers shuttles back and forth to the terminal at Baku. For Europe and the United States, the stakes are high. Kazakh oil must pass through the BTC pipeline to supply the Western markets. But from further east, a new competitor has joined the game with a limitless appetite. December 15th, 2005. For the first time, Kazakh oil flows eastward. From the Caspian Sea to China, a gigantic pipeline links the Kazakh oil fields and Xinjiang a Turkish-speaking Muslim province rebelling against Beijing. Professor Michael Clare of Hampshire College. China is interested in Kazakhstan's oil. Why? Because it is the only major supplier on China's border that can deliver oil by overland oil routes. And from the Chinese leadership, from a strategic point of view, from an energy security point of view, this is terribly valuable. So it's not relying on oil coming by sea. Any oil coming by sea can be interdicted by the U.S. Navy. The new pipeline supplies almost 15% of China's oil requirements to the refineries in Xinjiang, the province of the Uyghurs. Beijing considers Central Asia's oil reserves as strategically vital. And therefore, Xinjiang province is terribly important that it be in firm control of Beijing. It can't allow this to be an unstable area. And therefore, the Chinese leadership views the instability in Xinjiang, the Muslim insurgency of the Uyghurs, as a vital threat to their national security. Urumqi is the capital of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Riots here led to the deaths of hundreds of victims. Hans from China versus Uyghurs who've become a minority in their own province. Repression imposed by Beijing was implacable. Xinjiang must remain under the imperial capital's control. China's energy needs demand it. Jean Radvani, director of the French-Russian Research Center. situation at which 
We're in a situation that even the Americans haven't considered. Neither the Russians nor the Americans expected it. It isn't just America versus Russia in the Caucasus. It's now a game with three players. The Russians in the north, the Americans controlling most of the south, and the Chinese in the east, who are intervening more and more, and who will surely extend their influence even further. Across the Caucasus and Central Asia, this is the new great oil game. The United States, Russia and China contest the control of the former USSR's fossil fuel reserves and the supply routes. The southwest coast of Ireland seems far away from the dirty, treacherous world of oil. But we're here to meet a man who believes that that world could soon come to an end. Everyone calls Colin Campbell Mr. Peak Oil. He's a geologist who's worked with all the leading oil companies and has predicted the decline of oil. I'm predicting the end of the world. You know, some people describe me as a sort of doomsayer. And there's a certain reality, yes, because I've come to realize that uh, the modern world runs on oil. We're certainly not talking about the end of oil, no. We may never face the end of oil because who can say the last barrel to be found or produced could go on for a long, long time. What we do face is the peak of oil right now. Colin Campbell spends a quiet retirement here, among the pubs and coloured houses in the Irish village of Ballydehob. As the head of the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, Colin is not concerned about whether peak oil exists, but when it will happen. It's a reality the world refuses to accept. But a barrel of oil, says Campbell, is like a barrel of beer. The faster you drink, the sooner it's finished. There's no doubt that the decline of oil will, will make uh, those who continue to have a large share, which is mainly the Middle East, will be under increasing pressure from China and the United States and lesser degree Europe and other countries to produce that oil. But they will be under pressure to produce, and they may be under military pressure. As far as the eye can see, amidst the cotton fields, tens of thousands of nodding donkeys shake their heads. They've been pumping the very blood of the American economy for more than a hundred years, an archetypal image for generations. In the Texas of cowboys and prime beef, oil is akin to a religion, a lifestyle all-powerful in making and breaking fortunes. It's said here that there are two curses, communism and taxes. But in this land of free enterprise, there are no income taxes. And everyone owns the ground and resources beneath their own property. There are over 1,300 oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. And in Texas, more than 150,000 active oil wells. The companies are often family-owned. This morning, we have an appointment with Doug Robinson, an oil man born and bred. Being third generation oil, my grandfather, my father, uh, the oil business is, is in our blood. We like the risk of the oil and gas industry. And there are those who have been very, very rich and very, very poor many times over. So it's, it's a part of the legend of West Texas. Texas is also the home state of George W. Bush. Hailing from the town of Midland, the Bushes are a dynasty where oil mixes with politics. 
The grandfather, Senator Prescott, made his fortune at the head of a bank that supported the Nazi war effort. He advised his sons, get rich and get into politics. His son George grew rich from oil and became president of the United States. His grandson, George W., lost a fortune in oil, but became president anyway. Saturday night in downtown Midland. Farmers and oilmen celebrate the latest fluctuations in oil prices. Broke on Saturday, rich on Monday. Oil is expensive to produce in the USA, and the politicians are duty-bound to protect the smallholders. It's a simple equation. No environmental regulation, high prices, and American oil can be profitable. Every American president has known this, and oilmen have forever financed their campaigns. Texas is a patriotic land, and if a war has to be fought against so-called terrorists or to protect overseas oil fields, the boys are only too willing. Oil is strategic. You have to have it. And if you don't have it, then the people they're doing without it are going to come take it away from you to get it. It's like food. If you don't have food, you're going to be forced to go get it. On the other side of the globe, the Shat al-Arab is where the Tigris meets the Euphrates. This launch, belonging to the South Oil Company, is heading for the Al Bakr offshore terminal near Basra. An American patrol boards. No one can approach the terminal without permission. Even the director of South Oil, an Iraqi, has to comply. 85% of Iraqi oil passes through Basra. The terminal is of vital importance, and its protection, top priority. Iraqi oil under American control. For the Iraqi employees, this was the ultimate humiliation. Ali Nasser, director of the oil backup, oil terminal. I disagree with what's happening. I want Iraqis to control this place. I'd like the occupying forces to leave. It's what all Iraqis want. Because of Saddam, we were punished twice. While he was alive, and after his death. When he lived, he suffered his injustices. After his death, As the American tankers are filled with Iraqi oil, we head north to Baghdad. It's a chaotic city. Bombs explode frequently, but it's not clear who the enemy is. The patrols are Iraqi, the uniforms and weapons supplied by the USA. We are here to meet a former oil minister. Damir A. Gabdaban, Iraqi oil minister, 2004 to 2005. But when we look at the whole of Iraq, Iraq is also rich in, in, uh, in oil everywhere. And uh, just for your information, being an oilman, although Iraq was one of the earliest oil producers in the region, it is the least explored, okay? The success ratio, I mean, if we drill 100 wells in Iraq, 73 wells would hit oil. This is the historical, you know, experience. So there is so much oil in the region of Kurdistan, and there, now we are hearing about new discoveries, and I'm not surprised at all. The road to the north, towards the mountains of Iraq's northern Kurdish region. A land of shepherds, for a long time ruled and dominated by Baghdad, this region has discovered potential oil wealth and dreams of independence. A nightmare for the centralized regime in Baghdad. 
In 2007, the Kurdish parliament unanimously approved a new oil law, granting the local authorities the freedom to deliver licenses and exports without referring to Baghdad. It was party time in Erbil, the capital of this region. On June 3, 2009, Iraqi President Jalal Talabani and Kurdish leader Masoud Barzani opened up the flow of Kurdish oil. With a flag, a military force, a national anthem and a language, Iraq's Kurdish north is ready to become a nation. Since the American troops withdrew, there have been battles between Kurds, Shias and Sunnis. The Kurds dream of taking Kirkuk as their capital. But Kirkuk is oil-rich, very rich, and Baghdad has no intention of letting it go. In October 2009, Baghdad switched off the Kurdish oil taps. The oil produced in this region now had to flow through Iraqi pipelines. The oil revenues were to be centralized in Baghdad, and Iraq's northern Kurds would receive 17% of state income. The question of sharing the oil money became a potential motive for civil war. Iraqi oil minister, 2004 to 2005. The present situation, there are a number of some, uh, perhaps 28 contracts that have been awarded by the federal region of Kurdistan to oil companies without coordination with the federal government in Iraq. And this, of course, uh, led to uh, frictions between the Minister of Oil and the Minister of Natural Resources in Kurdistan. Uh, one of the points that we really uh, upset, you know, people, oil men and uh, regulators in, in Baghdad is that those contracts were not awarded in the spirit that we and the and the arrangement that we agreed on in the draft law. 200,000 Kurdish fighters, the Peshmerga, or those who face death, ensure the region's security. The new wealth and the probable autonomy of the region are a cause for concern among the neighboring countries, all with substantial Kurd communities. Turkey, Syria and Iran. Oil may bring riches, but also rivalries and resentment. Aram Ismail Said, News Desk Director of KNN TV. The production of oil by the Kurds can strengthen them and enable them to build a future for a Kurdish region. And this future will also influence Syria, Iran and Turkey. That's why it's not only Iraq that's opposing this. There are also neighboring countries which don't want Kurds to produce oil and benefit from the revenues. Iran keeps a watchful eye over the friction between the Kurds and Baghdad. The American-led war in the region gave Tehran considerable potential for interfering. A political influence in the region that, for many years, means that any president in Baghdad must have Iran's blessing. Once again, the United States opened up a Pandora's box and had a hard time closing it. Baghdad blocks the Kurdish oil exports. And so the refined petrol convoys head to neighboring Iran. A vast, strange traffic flow, and the Iraqi Kurdish oil bypasses Baghdad. Isolated by a US-imposed embargo, Iran lacks refineries. It has to import a considerable proportion of its petrol, an absurd paradox for the world's third biggest oil producer. Francis Perrin of the Arab Oil and Gas Journal. 
l'Iran a des ressources considérables qui sont elles aussi Iran has considerable resources which are underexploited because of the US and international sanctions which are partly oil and gas so the big western oil companies are refusing to work in Iran so Iran is more and more isolated it needs massive foreign investment to develop its oil and gas potential which is considerable. Iran is in the top three countries in terms of oil and gas reserves, which means it has an essential role in future energy concerns. In Tehran, there are calls for an economic jihad. With inflation, unemployment and a lack of freedom, discontent is growing. Oil revenues fund projects for appeasing the poorer populations the regime's main supporters. The American embargo has proved to be an effective weapon in this respect, but apart from oil, Iran has nothing to export, except pistachios and carpets. Kamel Al-Halami, Kuwaiti oil analyst. Our friend Iranian, we have to tame them, and we have to be uh, friendly with them. Uh, they also have, uh, they control the Al-Hormuz entrance to the Arabian Gulf. And also they control the inflow of oil to the world. They are in Iraq, they are in Gaza, they are in Lebanon. They are almost in the region where the hot points, they are there. And they have the so-called the nuclear. So they are disturbing everybody. Not only the, 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 the local region, but also the international. And everybody is worried. The Americans too fear Tehran's wrath. The Strait of Hormuz off the coast of Iran is one of the most strategically important and vulnerable places on the planet. The US Navy's fifth fleet watches over the world's most important sea passage. More than 15 million barrels of oil pass through the strait every day. The foreign press have been invited today. There are no sensors in sight. The giant South Pars Iranian oil and gas complex needs foreign investment. It's vital. Since 1996, the American embargo has been choking the world's third biggest oil producer. The vice is tightening around the regime, which the US accuses of developing nuclear weapons. The last oil giants, Total and Shell, have pulled out the embargo has intensified. The last companies operating here are Chinese, Indian and Malaysian. Dong Shucheng, director of the Oil Research Center in Beijing. The Western allegations that China is benefiting from the conflict with Iran and closing its eyes to the nuclear weapons to develop good relations are totally unfounded. Just because some countries disagree with another country, it doesn't mean every other country has to follow. China pursues its own diplomacy legally without contravening United Nations directives. It's quite normal, and I disapprove of these Western allegations. Otherwise, it would mean if the US doesn't agree with a country, the whole world has to follow. We have our new friend is coming, China. They are ambitious. 
and they want to see more. And if they are number two in the world economy, that's not going to be for uh, long because they want to be number one. And to be number one, they have to have oil. Tiananmen Square, scene of the 1989 massacre. On the facade of the imperial city, a portrait of Mao Zedong and the motto, Long live the People's Republic of China. To survive, China needs oil. A lot of oil. But China is not alone. The world's two biggest oil consumers, China and the United States, are waging a pitiless battle in the ongoing energy race. For the moment, it's being fought on economic and diplomatic grounds. Professor Michael Clare. Like the United States, China is very, very concerned about energy security. It's worried about the security of supply, about disruptions. And it's worried, like the United States, that it is excessively dependent on the Middle East. And there's some irony there. On, on one hand, uh, China depends on the United States to ensure stability of the Middle East. On the other hand, China is fearful of being over-dependent on the United States, that, that in the event of a clash with the United States, the U.S. Navy could seal the Persian Gulf to Chinese ships. 80% of China's oil imports pass through the Strait of Malacca, between Malaysia and Indonesia, transport that the American Navy could easily interrupt. And so Beijing reinforces its naval capacity. At present, China is working on diversifying its sources of supply, which were in the past concentrated in the Middle East. But now China is also getting supply. But now China is also getting supplies from Africa, Latin America, Central Asia, and Russia. For the last 30 years, China grew annually at 10%. Its appetite for oil appears limitless. The country has set off to conquer the world. The Middle East, Africa, and now South America. The first navigators called Venezuela Tierra de Gracia, the land of grace. For almost a century, South America's oil made fortunes for the Seven Sisters. Loaded in the ports of Venezuela and Mexico, it set sail for the refineries of Houston and Port Arthur. Hermes Garcia, oil terminal superintendent. When I joined the company in 1980, the ships of our subsidiaries were never taxed for the oil they exported. The bulk of the oil was exported. Our oil fields were exploited indiscriminately. It was a gift. They didn't pay the country any tax. In fact, the benefits of the oil were not felt here. The multinationals enabled other countries to profit. In the north of Venezuela is Lake Maracaibo, home to the PDVSA, the national oil company, and the scene of some of the worst plundering in the history of oil. In the 1920s, the dictator General Juan Vincent Gomez opened Venezuela's doors to the oil majors. They all enjoyed the spoils, giving generous kickbacks to the general and his clan. Despite the corruption, it was worth it. The reserves were colossal. Lake Maracaibo was covered with hundreds of derricks and wells. 
Venezuela became the world's second biggest oil producer after the United States. The Seven Sisters ruled the roost. Calixto Ortega, Venezuelan member of parliament. We have no doubt that the real oil masters in Venezuela for a long time were the multinationals, especially the American multinationals. Oil production began in Maracaibo about a century ago. The oil wells sprung up like a force of nature and gave this place worldwide importance. February 1999, Colonel Hugo Chavez is elected president of Venezuela. Like his model, the Libertador, the legendary Simon Bolivar, President Chavez dreamed of liberating his country and all Latin America. Soon, this would make Chavez a serious thorn in the side of the United States. They think the worst enemy is one who has a nationalist vision who wants national sovereignty to be respected. Venezuela supplied the US, which wanted to maintain sovereignty over this resource. When President Chavez came to power, he was regarded as an enemy by the multinationals. The new president had ambitions, building hundreds of schools and thousands of homes, creating agricultural cooperatives, and introducing widespread access to healthcare. The production of 3 million barrels a day and high oil prices enabled the president to spend, and spend again, oil as the fuel of social transformation. In the heart of the barrios of Caracas, this is the Misión Rivas, a social center for the most underprivileged, financed by the National Oil Company. A center for education, health, food aid, and workers' cooperatives. Everything is organized and managed by the people who live in this neighborhood. We are our own leaders. Here, we are our own bosses. It's a cooperative, so we are the owners. Where does this come from? From oil. The profits from selling the oil come back to us. That's why we have everything. Health care, education, food. Everything is being done to move the people forward. Confrontation was inevitable. On April 12, 2002, a coup d'etat was organized against Chavez. Concocted by oil company executives, supported by the generals, businessmen and the CIA, the president was arrested. But less than 48 hours later, due to massive public pressure, he was reinstated. Mario Sanoya, anthropologist. The rumours about the cost of this coup, although unconfirmed, were that an army general cost 100 million US dollars. Once again, the CIA used its favourite weapons, dollars and manipulation. With widespread public support, Chavez took control of the Venezuelan oil company. 20,000 executives and employees who'd taken part in strikes and sabotage were fired. Michael Economides, editor-in-chief of Energy Tribune. You have a president in Venezuela who farces himself as the reincarnation of Simon Bolivar. And the only thing he does, he takes the money from the oil industry. He doesn't even develop the oil industry. Venezuela produces less oil today than it produced since the first nationalization in the 70s. I mean, it's an absolute 
the biggest disaster in the oil business today in the world is in Venezuela. But this guy is popular. On May 1st, 2007, Chavez occupied the Orinoco oil fields, the last remaining in the hands of the Seven Sisters. Venezuelan men and women oil workers. Venezuela's oil is Venezuelan. The oil of the Orinoco is totally Venezuelan. Venezuela is free. The oil is ours. Thanks to Bolivar's revolution, long live free Venezuela. The oil of the Orinoco is heavy and hard to extract. Chavez needed new technology. Chinese, Russian and European companies were invited and they swarmed in. Chavez could smile. Venezuela's reserves are estimated to be some of the biggest on the planet. This time, the American companies lost the battle for Venezuela. A new international diplomacy has emerged around the oil market. Soaring crude prices have reinforced the financial position and influence of oil-producing countries not under Washington's control. Russia, Iran and Venezuela. At the $100 oil, we have an expression in American English, at the $100 oil, Putin and Hugo Chavez are thousand pound gorillas, you know, images of King Kong, okay. At $40 oil, they are reduced to chimpanzees, okay. And they will do everything in their power to get the price of oil up to $100. So if we want to convert Chavez and Putin to chimpanzees, it's very simple. Encourage Saudi Aramco to produce more oil, and that would collapse the price of oil to $20, and that would create a hell of a problem for oil-producing countries that right now appear to be stronger than they really are. April 20th, 2010. In Washington, the President of the United States is expected at the White House for a press conference. America has just suffered its worst ecological disaster. Deepwater Horizon, a BP oil rig, has exploded 80 kilometers off the American coast. 11 people are reported missing. The platform sinks two days later. At a depth of almost 4,000 meters, the damaged well spits out some 800 million liters of oil over 106 days. A record spill with BP and Halliburton seen as responsible. In a restaurant in the heart of Washington's Chinatown, Barack Obama is on the television. He qualifies the catastrophe as an ecological 9-11. The oil companies must pay, and the president announces a moratorium and the suspension of offshore drilling. But after a few months, the moratorium is lifted. Drilling resumes. No one can stop the race for oil. And so the oil men seek even further afield, in the far north, digging ever more holes. The tar-filled sands of Alberta in Canada represent some of the planet's biggest energy reserves. All the usual suspects are here. Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, Total, along with the Chinese CNOC and Sinopec. Francis Perrin of the Oil, Arab and Gas Journal. Les pétroliers for the oil companies, this is their normal game, always pushing back limits to produce more oil to satisfy increasing world demand. And obviously for financial reasons too, because the more oil they produce, the more they will sell and the more money they make. That's why they're there, particularly 
the private companies, but there are limits in terms of political risks, geopolitical risks, and the consequences for the environment and safety. The melting ice, due to global warming, is changing the map of the world. A new route is opening up, a northern sea passage, a commercial marine highway linking the markets of Southeast Asia and Europe. Russia has made the Arctic a strategic priority. The fabulous oil and gas reserves supposed to be here are on everyone's wish list. The United States, Canada, Denmark and Norway are all concerned about Russia's ambitious claims. Artur Chilingarov, politician and polar explorer. We're interested in the Arctic because it's an extension of Russia. There's oil and gas and gold here. We have to be here. On August 2nd, 2007, a Russian expedition planted a flag 4,267 metres below the geographic North Pole. A diplomatic bomb, a flag on the seabed, a way of saying to the world, the Arctic is Russian. In order to explore its fields in the Arctic, Russia has allied with the giant BP. The company responsible for the Gulf of Mexico disaster is providing finance, technology and expertise. For Putin, oil means wealth and power. 25% of the oil imported into Europe is Russian, a precious energy connection that silences many a critical voice. And so the czars, dictators and monarchs of the world continue to be courted by Paris, Washington and all the world's capitals. America's former vice president and the former chairman of Halliburton, Dick Cheney, is once said to have remarked, the good Lord did not see fit to give oil to democracies. Xavier Ouzel, oil trader. Dick Cheney may have said that God didn't see fit to give oil to democracies, but the Americans have never really wanted to set up democratic regimes in oil-rich countries. It's much easier to exploit the wealth of others when you have the complicity of a dictator. On December 17, 2010, a young Tunisian burns himself alive, and the fires of revolt are sparked throughout the Arab world. A wall of fear has fallen. A new generation voices its claims for freedom and a share of the oil rights enjoyed by the Gulf's ruling families or established clans. The Arab world rises up and the whole world trembles. Dictatorships collapse and monarchies waver. A terrible domino effect. A fire that seems to be raging as far as Saudi Arabia. Could the country known as the world's central oil bank also flare up? Pierre Terzien, director of Petrostratégie. If a country like Saudi Arabia was affected by this instability, then nobody would escape the catastrophic effects. Because nobody can replace Saudi oil. It's not even worth thinking about. The price of oil would soar to unprecedented levels. Not only would we suffer from an economic point of view, but we'd be seriously short of oil. There'd be a real lack. In Houston, the world's oil capital, no one in their worst nightmares could imagine serious shortages. The city lives and breeds oil. 
the Seven Sisters and almost a thousand other related companies all have an address in Houston. Number 800 Bell Avenue, the Exxon Building, the Cathedral, the Vatican of the oil industry. On the 43rd and 44th floors is the Petroleum Club, the Black Gold Aristocracy, 1,700 members, 500 of whom are dollar billionaires. It's the most exclusive club in the world. Tonight, they're celebrating mergers, mega marriages with mega dowries. Exxon and Chevron are respectively marrying Mobile and Texaco, an American love story. BP ties the knot with Amico, French Total weds Elf and Fina. The Anglo-Dutch Shell prefers to remain a bachelor. The Seven Sisters have no intention of dying. Once again, unity is strength. Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP and Total. Every year, the new quintet publishes record profit reports. Far from the filth of the oil fields, it's on the stock exchange ticker tape that the companies make their fortunes. Oil is the favorite prey of speculators. Every day, oil that doesn't exist is bought and sold. The sums of money that correspond to these virtual transactions are estimated by some as being five or even 20 times the actual volume of oil that's transported, bought, sold and consumed. And this has a considerable impact on the price of oil itself because the whims of these speculators who often rely on magic mathematical formulae on incredible doubling-up betting systems, change the prices without any real bearing on supply and demand realities. That's one of the reasons that we've sometimes seen the price of a barrel soar for reasons that had nothing to do with the market. The sisters have come a long way since the hunting party on the Scottish moors and the infamous night of August 28, 1928, when their cartel was created in absolute secrecy to divide up the world. The seven voracious sisters. They swore that they would only relinquish their power when the last drop of oil had flowed and the last dollar bill burnt to ashes. They were proud. But as the old saying goes, pride goes before a fall. Kamel Al-Hawami, Kuwaiti oil analyst. The seven sisters were full with reserve and they were independent oil companies. International independent oil companies. They did not have any attachment to the governments, to governments. Today, they have less reserve. Some of them are dying because they are losing the reserve. The sisters are no longer the only ones with the power the know-how in the global battle for oil. They're not the only ones who are hungry. Nationalization of oil reserves around the world has ushered in a new generation of oil companies, all vying for a slice of the oil pie. They are the new Seven Sisters. From Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, the largest and most sophisticated oil company in the world. From Russia, Gazprom, a company that Russia's latest Tsar, Vladimir Putin, wrested away from the oligarchs. The China National Petroleum Corporation, or CNPC, which along with its subsidiary PetroChina, is the world's second largest company in terms of market value. 
the National Iranian Oil Company, which has a monopoly on exploration, extraction, and transportation of crude oil in Iran, OPEC's second largest oil producer after Saudi Arabia. Venezuela's PDVSA, a company the late President Hugo Chavez dismantled and rebuilt into his country's economic engine and part of his diplomatic arsenal. Brazil's Petrobras, a leader in deep water oil production that pumps out 2 million barrels of crude a day. And from Malaysia, Petronas, Asia's most profitable company in 2012. Mainly state-owned, the new Seven Sisters control a third of the world's oil and gas production and more than a third of the world's reserves. The old Seven Sisters, by comparison, produce a tenth of the world's oil and control only 3% of the reserves. The balance has shifted. Now we continue with the following episode from James Corbett, produced in December 2015. Oil. From farm to pharmaceutical, diesel truck to dinner plate, pipeline to plastic product, it is impossible to think of an area of our modern-day lives that is not affected by the petrochemical industry. The story of oil is the story of the modern world. Parts of that story are well known. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, the internal combustion engine and the transformation of global transport, the House of Saud and the oil wars in the Middle East. Other parts are more obscure. The quest for oil in the outbreak of World War I, the petrochemical interests behind modern medicine, the big oil money behind the Green Revolution and the Gene Revolution. But that story, properly told, begins somewhere unexpected. Not in Pennsylvania with the first commercial drilling operation and the first oil boom, but in the rural backwoods of early 19th century New York State. And it doesn't start with crude oil or its derivatives, but a different product altogether, snake oil. Dr. Bill Livingston, celebrated cancer specialist, was the very image of the traveling snake oil salesman. He was neither a doctor nor a cancer specialist. His real name was not even Livingston. More to the point, the rock oil tonic he pawned was a useless mixture of laxative and petroleum and had no effect whatsoever on the cancer of the poor townsfolk he conned into buying it. He lived the life of a vagabond, always on the run from the last group of people he had fooled, engaged in ever more outrageous deceptions to make sure that the past wouldn't catch up with him. He abandoned his first wife and their six children to start a bigamous marriage in Canada at the same time as he fathered two more children by a third woman. He adopted the name Livingston after he was indicted for raping a girl in Cayuga in 1849. When he wasn't running away from them or disappearing for years at a time, he would teach his children the tricks of his treacherous trade. He once bragged of his parenting technique, I cheat my boys every chance I get. I want to make them sharp. A towering man of over six feet and with natural good looks that he used to his advantage, he went by Big Bill. Others, less generously, called him Devil Bill. But his real name was William Avery Rockefeller. And it was his son, John D. Rockefeller, who would go on to found the Standard Oil Monopoly and become the world's first billionaire. The world we live in today is the world created in Devil Bill's image. It's a world founded on treachery, deceit, and the naivety of a public that has never wised up to the parlor tricks that the Rockefellers and their ilk have been using to shape the world for the past century and a half. This is the story of the oligarchy. Titusville, 1857. A most unlikely man alights from a railway car into the midst of this sleepy western Pennsylvania town on the shores of Oil Creek. 
Colonel Edwin Drake. He's from the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company, and he's here on a mission. To collect oil. Like Dr. Bill, Drake isn't really a colonel. The title is bestowed on him by George Bissell and James Townsend, a lawyer and a banker who started the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company after they discovered they could distill the region's naturally occurring Seneca oil into lamp oil or kerosene. Drake is actually an unemployed railroad conductor who talked himself into a job after staying at the same hotel as Bissell the year before. Calling him a colonel, it is hoped, will help win the respect of the locals. The locals think he's crazy anyway. Seneca oil is indeed plentiful, bubbling out of seeps and collecting in the creek, but other than as a cure-all medicine or grease for the local sawmill's machinery, it's hardly seen as something valuable. In fact, it can be a downright nuisance, contaminating brine wells that supply Pittsburgh's booming salt industry. Still, Drake has a task to complete, finding a way to collect enough oil to make the distillation of Seneca oil into lamp oil profitable. He tries everything he can think of. The Native Americans had historically collected the oil by damming the creek near a seep and skimming the oil off the top. But Drake can only collect 6 to 10 gallons of oil a day this way, even when he opens up extra seeps. He tries digging a shaft, but the groundwater floods in too quickly. By the summer of 1859, he's desperate. Drake is running out of ideas, Bissell and Townsend are running out of patience, and, most importantly, the company is running out of funds. He turns to Uncle Billy Smith, a Pittsburgh blacksmith who had experience drilling brine wells with steam-powered equipment. They get to work drilling down through the shale bedrock to reach the oil. It's maddeningly slow work, with the crude equipment struggling to get through three feet of bedrock a day. By August 27th, they've drilled down 69 and a half feet. Drake has used the last of his funds, and Bissell and his partners have decided to close up the operation. On August 28th, they strike oil. Then on Sunday, August 28, 1859, oil bubbled up the driveway. Uncle Billy and his son Sam bailed out several buckets of oil. On Monday, the very day that Colonel Drake received his final payment and in order to close down the operation, they hitched the walking beam to a water pump and the oil began to flow. The first oil was to sell for $40 a barrel. Years later, a local newspaper interviewed Uncle Billy about the day they struck oil. I commenced drilling, and at 4 o'clock, I struck the oil. I says to Mr. Drake, look there, what do you think of this? He looked down the pipe and said, what's that? I said, that is your fortune. Drake's well proved that by drilling for it, Oil could be found in abundance and produced cheaply. Overnight, a whole new industry was born. Before long, in millions of homes, farms, and factories around the world, lamps would be lit with kerosene, refined from West Pennsylvania crude. When the word came out that Drake had struck oil, the cry went up throughout the narrow valleys of western Pennsylvania. The crazy Yankee has struck oil. The crazy Yankee has struck oil. And it was the first great boom. It was like a, a gold rush. <laughs> 